I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. We are actually going to be in several passages of Scripture. I might even say many passages of Scripture this morning because I would like to draw your attention to the reason for the season, which of course is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to look at him from the past, present, and future perspective. And for that reason, I have entitled my discourse to you this morning, From a Manger to a Throne. If you will notice in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 30, we have an account of the angel Gabriel that comes to Mary. And he says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. I read an interesting piece of research this week. This year, 2015, the Barna Research Group discovered that a a vast majority of Americans believe Jesus was a real person. But they tell us that younger generations are increasingly less likely to believe Jesus was God. They tell us that most adults, not quite six in ten, believe Jesus was God. That's about 56%. While about one quarter say he was only a religious or spiritual leader like Muhammad or the Buddha. The remaining one in six aren't sure whether Jesus was divine or not. The research goes on to say that millennials are the only generation among whom whom fewer than half believe Jesus was God. So younger people, about 48%, believe that Jesus was God. About one-third of young adults, or about 35%, say instead that Jesus was merely a religious or spiritual leader, while 17% aren't sure what he was. About half of Americans, they tell us, believe that Jesus Christ was human and committed sins like other people. The research says that most Americans say they have made a commitment to Jesus Christ, but people are conflicted between Jesus and good deeds as the way to heaven. David Kinneman, president of Barna Group that directed the national study, says, quote, there isn't much argument about whether Jesus Christ actually was a historical person, but nearly everything else about his life generates enormous and sometimes rancorous debate. These findings, however, he goes on to say, demonstrate the strong degree to which Jesus remains embedded in the minds of Americans. This study also shows the extent of Christian commitment in the nation. More than 150 million Americans say they have professed faith in Christ. This impressive number begs the question of how well this commitment is expressed. As much of our previous research shows, Americans dedicated to Jesus is, or Americans' dedication to Jesus is, in most cases, a mile wide and an inch deep. Finally, Kinneman adds, many of the institutional, cultural, and familial tendons that connect young adults to life in Christ are stretching. Much has been made about whether millennials will get more serious about church and faith as they age, but the fact is younger Americans are not as connected as older generations are to Christ. Finally, he says, Jesus is a friend of sinners, but many millennials are unfriending him at a time when their lives are being shaped and their trajectories set toward the future. Well, to be sure, we can see in our culture that there is a war on Christmas, as many people describe it. 
increasingly we see people hating Christmas because they hate Christ and all who belong to Him. And certainly many think it is utter foolishness, a pure myth to assume that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. Anything that even smacks of Christianity today is now considered offensive and must be removed from the public square and even barred from public discourse. And it's easy for we as believers to get caught up in this and to begin to kind of shy away, to begin to fear man more than we fear God, and to get caught up in the materialism of all of this. And before we realize it, the glorious truths of who Jesus really is, is drowned out with all of the noise of Satan's world system. And we forget what really happened 2,015 years ago, and what is happening now, and what is going to happen. So this morning, I want to remind you of these great truths. And I might add that what I'm about to say is exceedingly politically incorrect in our world, in our culture. It will offend the sensibilities of every person who has not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But for those appointed unto salvation, these will be words of eternal life. And young people, I especially want you to hear what God has to say to you through his servant this morning and through his word. So who was Jesus, this babe in a manger? Well, God has revealed the answer to that question in his infallible record, the word of God. This is our spiritual authority. We've already read one passage. We're going to come back to that, but I want to take you to another that we read earlier in our scripture reading. You recall, you will recall in Matthew 1, beginning in verse 20, the angel of the Lord Uh, appeared to Joseph and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Likewise, we just read Gabriel's announcement to Mary that her son Jesus would be the son of God. He says that he will be great. He will be called the son of the Most High. Now, isn't it interesting? He will be great. That's a matter of dispute, perhaps. When Jesus was here, he was despised, he was rejected, he was crucified. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He lived in poverty. He had no place to lay his head. He was accused of being possessed by a demon in cahoots with Satan. And he was even buried in a borrowed grave. So in what way was, his, was he great? Well, we must understand that his greatness had to do with the perfection of his nature, with his deity. He was the son of the Most High, and he was also great in his saving work on the cross. But again, notice he will be great. Ultimately, his greatness will be known to all men when he returns in glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. At that time, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So who was this babe in the manger? Young people, who was he? He was God, very God. He was the Son of the Most High, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who will save his people from their sins. Well, no reason or no wonder the world hates Christmas because sinful man hates Christ and all who belong to him. They hate these truths. They love their sin and they hate the truth. Moreover, we know that Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Scripture is filled with who Jesus really was. 
Let me remind you of another text. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15, that he is the image, in other words, the likeness or the manifestation of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn meaning he is first in rank, first in position, the one to whom belongs the right and dignity of the firstborn in relation to every creature. In other words, he is the highly exalted one, the one above every creature, the heir and ruler of all. The inspired apostle apostle goes on to say, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. In other words, dear friends, he is not only the creator of all things, but he is the very goal of creation. Everything exists to give him glory. The text goes on to read, he is before all things. In other words, he is before all things in time, before all things in rank. And in him all things hold together. In other words, he is both the unifying principle and personal sustainer of everything that he has created. That is absolutely astounding when you consider the implications of that. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 1, verse 3, that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Let me put that into perspective for you. When Jesus was an embryo in the womb of Mary... He was sustaining all of his creation. This is staggering. We can look around the world in which we live and we see in this material universe inviolable fixed laws of physics that maintain the unity of all of these complex systems. We are told that the slightest change in the rate of the earth's rotation around the sun or the most minute change of angle on its axis would cause us to either freeze or burn. But because of Jesus, it stays exactly the way he created it. Physicists tell us that the slightest change in the mass of a proton would result in the dissolution of hydrogen atoms, which would cause the entire universe to dissolve into oblivion. Physicists are still utterly baffled in trying to understand why the nucleus of the atom holds together. Well, we know why it holds together, how it holds together. At least we know the one who is holding it together. We don't know how he does it, but we know he is the one. And eventually the one who holds the protons together will release them in final judgment. That will be a time when the nuclei of atoms will all fly apart and Peter says the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So much for global warming. Little do those people who believe in that hoax and many of them are are trying to perpetuate that hoax for, for their own agenda, mainly global regulations, the redistribution of wealth, a one-world government, and all of those types of things. Little do they realize what's going to happen one day. And it's going to be the result not of emissions from mankind. It's going to be the result of what the Creator does with His creation in judgment and in purification. Folks, my point is simply this. The babe in the manger was and is the creator, the sustainer, and the consummator of his universe. In the first five verses of John's gospel, we read about the glory of the Son, the divine word. We read there that he is the pre-existent, self-existent, uncreated creator of the universe. John goes on to reveal how... The divine Lagos, will, who, who is, the, is the light that, that enlightens every man to the truth of who God is and who we are in relation to him. He tells us also that his own people, the Jews, rejected that light. And yet those who receive him, he says, to them he gave the right to become children of God. 
They are those who are actually born of God. And then you may recall in that magnificent prologue of John's gospel, the orchestra of divine revelation begins to crescendo. You can begin to hear the timpani's roll, so to speak. And then suddenly the cymbals explode and the trumpets blare into a soul-captivating, mysterious, magnificent oratorio of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John tells us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That which man could never see and live became that which we could see and touch and hear and emulate. He became something that he was not previously. He did not cease to be God, but he did become man, fully God, yet fully man, with a human nature, yet without sin. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. The divine logos, the, the, the divine word, this personal God came, dwelt among us, and he was the source of all revelation of truth and wisdom the one who already existed at creation. He comes and he dwells among us. And ultimately, John went on to reveal that the incarnate son would live among men in order to die in place of man and thus fulfill really the purpose of the incarnation, the climax of God's condescending grace towards all who will believe in him There we read how God, for his own glory, with great love for sinners, sent forth his son to this earth earth to take on human flesh and live a perfect life. And then, according to his perfect plan of redemption, the Lord Jesus Christ voluntarily bore the guilt and curse of the sins of all who would believe in him. Ultimately, There would be a great exchange that would take place on the cross. He took our sin and he gives us his righteousness. The father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So literally we read how that God had to pay the penalty for our sins himself causing mercy and justice to Unite together on the cross of Calvary. Oh, the mystery and the miracle of Christmas that God became man in order to reconcile man to God. But you will recall that the angelic messenger revealed something else to Joseph and to Mary. Not only was he Emmanuel, God with us, the one who will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, But he went on to say in in Luke 1 to Mary that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. So here, dear friends, we discover that this lowly Jesus will leave his manger and ascend to a glorious throne. Now, it's important for you to understand These great truths, not only in this text, but in many other texts that really reveal what the Spirit of God is saying. You see, the throne of David was clearly a reference to a literal kingdom upon the earth. The long-anticipated messianic kingdom. Bear in mind, Mary, who was a physical descendant of David, would never have thought that the angel was referring simply to some spiritual kingdom. Nor would she or any Jew understand the angel's reference to the house of Jacob as anything other than theocratic royalty of Israel, not the Christian church. You will recall... Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 9, verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulder. He goes on to say there will be no end to the increase of government or of, or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness 
from then on and forevermore. The first century Jewish people understood this. You will recall in Luke 1 that the angel also came to Zacharias and announced to him that his barren wife, Elizabeth, would bear a son. And there we read about John the Baptist. The angel says that he will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he says in in verse 17, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And all of that was in fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy in chapter 3 and verse 1. Moreover, in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 and following, when John the Baptist was born, his father Zacharias described the Messiah as the Lord God of Israel, of the house of David, the one who would remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. Well, what's that referring to? Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. There you have God's covenant promise that he gave to Abraham, a unilateral, irreversible, unconditional covenant that would not only include the blessed seed of the Messiah, but a nation that would ultimately inherit a specific geographical region of land upon the earth that would be holy unto the Lord. Genesis 15, 18, it goes from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Euphrates. Moreover, we read how Anna, the 84-year-old widow, who Luke tells us never left the temple serving night and day with fastings. Boy, she was dedicated, wasn't she? When she saw the Christ child, she immediately began to give thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. They were all looking for a literal earthly kingdom. So folks, make no mistake, Jesus was born to be the king of the Jews in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the nation of Israel and its capital city of Jerusalem. The kingdom of the Lord announced to the nation of Israel was the mediatorial kingdom of the Old Testament prophets, the same one that will be established one day when he comes as king of kings and lord of lords. The Jewish hearers knew precisely what John the Baptist was referring to when he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And likewise, they understood Jesus' meaning of the kingdom when he began his public ministry. The first thing he said was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. No one hearing him would have thought that he was referring simply to a spiritual kingdom. No, no, it was far more than that. What's more, it's fascinating to note that 82 times in the Gospels, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. This was one of his favorite descriptions of himself. And he repeatedly referred to the kingdom as the kingdom of heaven. Well, what does this mean? Well, Scripture interprets itself. These are terms that we find in Daniel's prophecy. You will recall in Daniel chapter 2, there is a symbol of a great image used to describe a series of world empires that would ultimately be destroyed by a divine kingdom, a literal kingdom. And in chapter 2 and verse 44, we, we read, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Moreover, in Daniel 7, these same successive empires are symbolized by four beasts when Suddenly, the Son of Man is presented with his conquering and eternal kingdom. And in Daniel 7, beginning in verse 13, Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Dear friends, this is baby Jesus in the manger. 
who is also the King of Kings. We also see the connection between the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of Old Testament prophecy in the genealogical record of Matthew. You will recall that Matthew's genealogy is paternal. It traces uh, Jesus' roots all the way back through his earthly father, Joseph. And he begins with Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, and traces the messianic line forward to Jesus. Whereas Luke's genealogy is maternal, tracing roots, Jesus' roots through his earthly mother. Unlike Matthew, Luke started at the present and worked his way back to the past. Bear in mind that neither of these genealogies were ever disputed by the Jewish people. And both of them proved that Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne of David. So, beloved, I would submit to you that Jesus came from a line that descended from David through Solomon. We see his kingship all through even the New Testament. For example, in Matthew's gospel that focuses on his royal kingship, we have the account of the Magi. In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1 that we read earlier, we read, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. By the way, Magi were the Persian kingmakers. There was a large entourage of them that came running into Jerusalem looking for the king. Undoubtedly, they knew that he would come because they had seen a star, not the kind of star that we think of, but literally a stare in the original language, a blazing forth. And undoubtedly, they were taught about the Shekinah, the glorious presence of the Lord God that would appear. They were taught by Daniel, who was the head of the Magi when he lived. Undoubtedly, they were aware of Numbers twenty four seventeen, where the prophet says, A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Jerusalem. A star in the Hebrew is a koshav, a blazing forth. Somehow, they knew that when they saw the blazing forth, it was time to go to Jerusalem because a Messiah king was coming. So the Magi from the east arrived at Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his blazing forth. We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. The text tells us that Herod was frightened. He was terrified and he sought to kill the newborn king. So he gathers, verse 4, all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. You see, obviously Herod was worried about this. He had some understanding of Old Testament prophecy. The text says he began to inquire, imperfect tense, the idea that that he is constantly running around. What is going on here? Where is he going to be born? I mean, it's code red. It is full alert. There are hourly briefings, if you will. Herod is terrified. He's pacing back and forth. They come to him in verse 5 and say to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. He's referring to Micah 5 too. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And beloved, this phrase is a direct quote from 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 2. When the elders of the tribes of Israel gathered at Hebron to anoint David as their king, the king of Israel... And they quoted the Lord's words to him, You will shepherd my people Israel and will be ruler over Israel. David the lesser king pointing to the greater king, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. These were the very first words to David when God first established the kingdom of Israel. So again, the ancient kingdom was not something that was merely spiritual. It was physical. Nor is the reference to the messianic rule quoted here in Matthew 2.5 a reference to something that's just merely spiritual. I mean, certainly Herod didn't think it was just spiritual. 
It was something far more than that. And you will recall, he tried to kill all the little boys around that area to eliminate a rival king. Herod was terrified of the words of the prophet concerning the coming king, Isaiah 9, 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, unlike yours, all right? Or uh, he goes on to say, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Child of God, don't miss this. Jesus in the manger was the uncreated creator, sustainer, and consummator of all things, but he is also our savior and our coming king. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew chapter 25, if you would like to turn there. And this is where we will park for the remainder of our time together here this morning. There we read how a day is coming when the patience of God will reach its limit. When the mockers and the scoffers on earth will cause his nostrils to flare in holy indignation. When his wrath will finally cause him to rise from his throne. And in power and great glory he will come to judge the wicked and establish the long promised millennial kingdom. And I might add as a footnote, this is very different from the smiley face Jesus that is so often preached in modern evangelicalism today. This Jesus that, that winks at sin and kind of giggles at our mistakes. This, this Jesus that oozes sentimental love and, and tolerance for every imaginable, imaginable um, sexual and theological perversion. This is very different from the malleable prosperity Jesus, the one that can be easily manipulated by people, cajoled into giving us what we want because he's so stingy. And it's even different from sometimes our perspective of the Jesus who came so meek and lowly in the manger. Indeed, first he came in humility, but folks, at his second coming, the days of grace and mercy will be over, as well as the days of demeaning and ridicule. And he will come, not as Savior, but as judge. Jesus spoke of these things just before he went to the cross. Let me give you three categories that I think will be helpful in Matthew 25. First of all, Jesus speaks of the magnificent spectacle of the king enthroned. And here we have a contrast of when he came first in humiliation versus when he returns in glorification. Jesus says in verse 31 of Matthew 25, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, it's interesting, you will not see this scene described in any of the other Gospels. Matthew's focus is primarily on Jesus as the Messiah King, the sovereign King. And thus, more than any other, Matthew's Gospel is replete with revelation concerning the King's return. And this is what we see in Jesus' words. Now, can you imagine a more magnificent spectacle? Here Jesus is describing his descent to this earth in pre-incarnate glory. And to make it even more magnificent, he is attended by the heavenly host, the holy angels. This scene will be the most astounding sight in the history of all of the world. It will be a scene that will cause saints to weep with joy and sinners to wail in terror. Now, may I remind you of the context of this particular passage. Jesus has been speaking to his disciples concerning the signs that will lead up to his return. They have asked about this. He has been talking about the importance of, of spiritual readiness and service for those who will endure the tribulation. And he now concludes with this astounding scene of, of unrivaled royalty and sobering judgment. And he says, the Son of Man comes in his glory. You see, folks, 
The days of obscurity and humility will be over. The meek and gentle Savior doesn't return as a lamb that opens not his mouth. He returns as the royal lion of the tribe of Judah. He came the first time in humility. He will come again in glory. He came the first time in obscurity. He will come the second time in profound visibility. He came the first time to be judged. He will come the second time to judge. This is the Jesus of Christmas. And how thrilling it is to read of who he is in the prophets. For example, God spoke, spoke through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 25. And as is often the case, prophecies point not only to the near but also to the far. You can see the near mountain peak of coming judgment that would soon come upon them, but also it spoke of peaks way off in the past with time in between. There he describes the Lord's return. Jeremiah 25, beginning at verse 30, the Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will shout like those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. A clamor has come to the end of the earth because the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh. As for the wicked, he has given them to the sword, declares the Lord. And in verse 38, we read that he has left his hiding place like the lion. For their land has become a horror because of the fierceness of the oppressing sword and because of his fierce anger. This is reminiscent of what the Spirit tells us through the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1. You remember in verse 7, he says that the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, back to what Jesus is telling the disciples and telling all of us. You will remember in Matthew 24, Jesus has already told them when all of this is going to occur. He says that it will be immediately after the tribulation, the tribulation of those days when the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he will send forth his angels. Imagine the world in that day. The planet, according to the Bible prophecies, will be devastated by divine judgment at that point. Which, by the way, I believe is God's final blow to the idolaters who worship the environment. The judgments of Revelation 6 through 19 tell us that the majority of the earth's inhabitants will be killed. We're told that both the saved and the unsaved who have survived the Holocaust will suddenly see the lights of heaven turned out. There will be a violent shaking of the entire earth and the unthinkable happens. In the midst of the shaking and all of the darkness, suddenly the sky explodes with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he appears along with his heavenly hosts. And you know who else will be with him? We will be with him. Colossians 3, 4, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And other passages attest to the same. Also, all the Old Testament saints, all who have died during the church age, those who have been snatched away in the rapture of the church prior to the tribulation, all those martyred during the tribulation, what a grand spectacle that will be. Words cannot express it. According to Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4, we're told that the Messiah will descend to the Mount of Olives, the very place where he once before left, remember? And the angel said, he's coming back the same way, same place. Zechariah tells us that the mount will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. 
so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. In other words, the Lord will radically alter the topography of Jerusalem. He is going to make it suitable for his holy and glorious inhabitants, for his, for his millennial temple that Ezekiel describes in such great detail. And then in verse 5, the Lord my God will come, he says, and all the holy ones with him. And it will come about in that day that there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Oh, child of God, don't miss this. A day of judgment is coming when no one will be able to ignore him as they do today. No one will miss him because the glory of the Lord will be the only source of illumination upon the earth. Some wonder what's going to happen to all those that hate ISIS or hate Israel like ISIS, all the Muslim nations and so many others. Of course, Israel right now is largely unbelieving. We know most of them will be destroyed, but there is going to be a remnant who towards the end, when they see the Lord Jesus for who he is, delivering them in the hour of their greatest peril, they will believe. And as Paul says, all Israel will be saved. What's going to happen to all these people that hate Christ, that, that, that hate Christians, that even hate Israel and want to wipe them off the face of the earth? Well, you can go to Ezekiel 38 and 39 and see how God is going to destroy them on the mountains of Israel, that the nations of the world will know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel. And we're also told in Zechariah 14, 12, that the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. In Revelation 6, verse 15, we have a description of those that will be left before that time of judgment. It says that they will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they will say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? We're told in Scripture that because of the cataclysmic upheaval on the Mount of Olives, a new valley is going to be formed, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which means the Valley of Decision. And that's where the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, the babe in the manger who is now upon his throne, will judge the nations. And God speaks through the prophet Joel concerning this this unimaginable event when the warrior king returns. Joel chapter 3 and verse 12. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means Jehovah judges. For there I will set to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Referring to the harvest of judgments. Come tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Verse 15, the sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness and the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. And then when the king is established upon his throne in all of his glory, in verse 32 of Joel 3, we read, All of the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Isn't it interesting? The very first act of the enthroned king will be to separate the sheep from the goats, the saved from the lost. This is a picture of the pre-kingdom judgments. But Jesus not only speaks of the magnificent spectacle of the king enthroned, what you notice secondly here, he speaks of the, the glorious inheritance of the king's loyal subjects. You see, in 
that great day of divine discrimination, it will not be a matter of what denomination or religion you belong to. Entering the kingdom will have nothing to do with your social status or your political affiliation. All of that will be insignificant. All that will matter is what you did with Jesus. Who is the object of your faith? The sheep will be on his right. All others, the goats, will be on the left. So Jesus speaks of his appearing in his glory when he comes and reveals the terrifying perfections of his deity. Glories that we've only slightly seen in history. Probably the closest we could come to it is when he peeled back his flesh on the Mount of Transfiguration and the effulgence of his glory blazed forth. But We know that the Father has given the Son the authority to be the judge. John 5, not even the Father judges anyone, but has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. If you'll notice again in verse 32, all of the nations will be gathered before him. Nations refers, it's ethnon, the original language. It refers to peoples. All who have survived the horrors of the great tribulation, both the saved and the unsaved, will stand before him in the valley of decision. And he describes those, as, those he places on his right. By the way, those on the right, was, they, they were the ones that, or I should say, this was the customary position in Jewish culture where a son would receive their father's blessing. Verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Notice that admission to the kingdom has nothing to do with personal merit. It has nothing to do with human achievement. It has nothing to do with an individual's self-righteousness. It has to do with whether or not you were blessed of my father. In other words, salvation depends solely upon God's sovereign grace. So Jesus makes it clear that these are these on his right, the sheep, will be the ones who are blessed by the Father. He says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then finally, notice the horrifying, horrifying condemnation of the king's rebellious enemies. Verse 41, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. What an unimaginable scene of divine justice. Those who reject Christ will be executed on the spot. They will be instantly thrown into the eternal inferno because of their lack of faith in Christ. And as we read scripture, we learn that their souls will instantly be placed into the abyss of torment, and there they will remain for a thousand years. And according to Jesus' words in John 5, 28, after that, their bodies will be resurrected and united with their eternally cursed souls. Those bodies will be fashioned into an indestructible body designed to withstand the eternal torments of the solitary confinement of hell. Verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Dear friends, this is the Christ of Christmas, the lover of our soul, our Savior and our King, the one Satan and the world despises. May I leave you with a very practical challenge this morning? In the first chapter of Revelation, John tells us, I saw the glory of Christ. And then he gives this amazing description. I'd like for you to take time this Christmas season to really meditate upon the person and the work of Christ. Turn off the television. Get away from the Christmas tree. Try to find a place and meditate upon who Christ really is. Maybe you want to listen to this again. I know there's no way you can absorb all of this. I understand that. But think about that, because we are told in Scripture that when we gaze upon the glory of the Son, 
The Spirit of God does this amazing work within our souls and He changes us from one degree of glory to another by the power of His Spirit. And so when we gaze upon the outshining of the inward being of Him who is God, very God, when we behold the consummate perfections of His love and His greatness and His holiness, the Holy Spirit will cause us to become more like Him and He will also cause us to enjoy Him more and delight in Him more. Folks, this should be the cry of our heart this Christmas season. Through our vision of Christ, the Holy Spirit can labor within us to do these amazing things. And you know, this was Jesus' great burden for his people, that we might be changed from one glory to another. This is the purpose for those whom the Father has given him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths that give such clarity to who Jesus really is. This gives us understanding as to why we exist. This is why God made us to reflect the glory of our Savior and King. Lord, again, we give you praise that he took our flesh that he might give us eternal, the eternal spirit. Lord, we thank you that he was the one that once laid in a manger so that we could eventually live in glory. That he came down to earth that we might ascend to heaven. Lord, may we reflect his glory in our hearts and in our lives. And if there be one here today that really knows nothing what it, of what it means to, to know Christ, to experience the joy of his person in the core of their being, they know nothing of what it means to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Oh God, how I pray that you will overwhelm them with the conviction of their sin and open their eyes that they might see the glory of the cross and be saved. We ask all of these things in the name of our precious Savior and Lord and for his glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author, Dr. David Harrell. For more information or for other messages from Dr. Harrell, please visit the Olive Tree Christian Resources website at otcr.org.